Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast where we chat everything and anything to do with the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie. I'm Nora Jermaine. I'm a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter. I'm a violinist and possibly future best-selling author, maybe. (laughs) And we are both podcasters. You're going to hear us chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within arguably the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Audioboom. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell the in-laws, tell the outlaws. Let them know what's going on over here, but for now, enjoy the podcast. Our guest this week, the unbelievable Al Brown, amazing blues guitar player, singer, and he's got his debut album out. Really, really cool. Um, Alan, I am in awe of his guitar playing, as everybody is that has heard him and that knows him. Super nice guy. Great conversation. All coming up. But for now, I am joined by the one and only Nora from Seska Germain. Nora, how are we? I'm feeling great. How are you? You know me, Nora. Can't complain. Never do. That's the one. But listen. Yeah. What we're going to be discussing today, right? Yeah. Once we come back from an interview with Al Brown, and here's your cliffhanger, ladies and gentlemen. The amazing yeah. Alan Brown. Nora loves him too. It's all good, right? Nora and I are going to be discussing, when we come back from the interview, how to overcome adversity. You know, this actually goes really well with the blues because blues music, um, really at the heart of it, it's basically about overcoming adversity. That's why blues sounds so great. It's sadness with a silver lining. It's the it's the balance of, I don't know how I'm going to get by, but I believe I can. What's going to happen to me? Oh, Jesus, save me. Uh, and <laughs> my life is in tatters, but I'm still going out drinking anyway. My romance is ruined, but I'm hopelessly addicted to love. These are the, it's, it's the, it's the, um, it's the marriage of the dark and light that makes the blues so great. It's all about adversity. That is You're exactly just, is, what. Are you just making that up? Because that's some serious. No, I'm no. This is no. I'm serious. This is no. This is the point of the blues. I'm telling you. That was some good um, shit right there. That was some good stuff. No, I know. I know. It's this is a lot. There's a lot of stuff. I mean, I've. <laughs> on you go. We're on. We're as unprofessional as ever. Continue. Sorry, this is very strange noise outside. I think somebody might like be. Cutting. It sounds like a chainsaw. You sure Mike Myers isn't out the side? I think somebody might be chainsawing my violin in half. It's oh, okay. That's okay. Um, it's fine. I probably deserved it. So, um, um, yeah. So, if you there's some really great people that talk about the blues. One person in particular is, is the trumpet player Winton Marsalis, and um, he's just a wonderful guy. And um, and uh, he talks about the blues sometimes about his theory about what is the true sentiment behind playing the blues, which is good. And, um, yeah, I mean, we'll hear about it from Alan Brown, so this is going to be good. We're going to cut to the interview, and we'll be right back with Nora Francesca Germain with Mike Myers in the background. 
Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast and joining me now, excellent guitarist with the new album out, the very, very well respected, very humble, <laughs> Alan Brown, how are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> so the new album that I just said, it's been, the last time I spoke to you was probably about a year and a half ago, um, and you'd said that you were going out, you were doing the solo thing, you'd started singing at that point, mm -hmm. something that you put off for a while. Yeah. <laughs> um, I log online last week and see the new album mm -hmm. so why now why the decision to, to come up with a new album how did it all come about um well I'd, I'd always wanted to record you know and it's uh, such a big project recording that I, I just never just never got around to it so um i had the chance uh last i think it was last september um and just spent a week in the studio with some good guys and uh got it down so it's taken a wee while to get to, to actually get the thing released, get it all polished off and finished. So I'm glad it's out now. <laughs> it sounds really good by the sounds of it, because uh, as you know, I downloaded it this morning, uh -huh. and, you, and you kindly arrived today with the with a with a, a copy, which I'm, uh -huh. I, I really appreciate. Um, it sounds very live. It sounds mm -hmm. very like how I would expect it, just right in the shoot. Is that how it went down? It did. I mean, there's there's very. Uh, I think most of the tracks are actually live. There's very little uh, that we had to go in and fix. Um, a lot of them are. The guide vocal was used on a couple of tracks just from the the first run through, and a lot of the guitar solos as well were just the, the takes that uh, as they appeared. You know, we maybe tried each song a couple of times and just picked the best take. So it's very alive, yeah. And where did you, you may have mentioned it just briefly there. Where did you record it? Uh, Maybank Studios. Right. Uh, so the, the engineer, Matt Harvey, gets a really good sound in there. And I've worked in there before. I'm quite comfortable in there. So it was good fun. <laughs> was, was that a conscious effort just to say, right, we're doing this as a live thing? Did you even need to mention it to any of the guys or the engineer or did it just kind of happen organically? I, kind of organic that way. But I, I think with blues, it's, uh, it's important that you don't, over overcook it. I think it, it needs an element of uh, you need to leave a bit of the rough in, otherwise uh, you know it, it comes over as too clinical, and it just to me it doesn't work if if it's over over tweaked. Yeah. It's interesting <laughs> you say that. I always see you, or always have seen you as a as a purist when it mm -hmm. comes to blues. You've always been ever since I've known you. Uh -huh. um, a real a real good idea as to to who you are and what you do. Uh, most of us, like myself. When I started my first band, I played Oasis. I've been uh -huh. in metal bands. I've been I've, I've continuously going through an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. However, yourself, <laughs> you've always had a very good idea. Did you ever go through that stage of like, were you ever in a band playing different things? Has it always been the blues? What What is the, how did, I, it, how did that all I think done? when I started playing, it was really because my, my uncle plays, well, is a great finger picker. And he played a lot of um, old kind of John Fahey and Stephen Grossman finger-picking blues things, and that really fascinated me when I was about 11 or 12. So I've always had an ear for it, and, and from that, I, I got an acoustic, and I, I tried to learn that way, uh, just finger-picking. And, and then I started, obviously, uh, you hear some of the electric players, you know, and I eventually got electric, but I homed in on the, it was the blues that fascinated me, basically. Um, B.B. King and uh, all these guys, you know, I mean, I think I seen him when I was 17. What did you see him? Uh, Edinburgh Playhouse, which was, was still, I've never seen anyone consistently hit notes like that all night. It was just every note 
was just the right note. It was a great gig, you know. And uh, so, yeah, all, all the all the kind of blues guys have always been influenced by that. I mean, I've, I've played in other things as well, but it kind of goes against my grain a bit. I don't feel I don't feel so comfortable if if, if I'm playing stuff that's not rooted in that, you know. <laughs> Because exactly, because I've always thought because you could easily play, in, in my estimation, you could easily play any different style to a, a very good standard if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always thought, and I've said this to many people, one of them being Connor Smith, who we both oh, know. Well, yeah, he's a really good player. <laughs> he is indeed. I said to him a couple of weeks ago um, that even if you were offered the gig in for, for this is maybe a bad example, but One Direction or <laughs> any sort of pop act, maybe that's a bad example because that's too yeah, much of an extreme. Yeah. But if you were offered the gig that. Um, was on a really high level. It was very well paid mm -hmm. and would set you up for a good period of time. Me, I, I would have no ear with so graces. I would be there in a second. <laughs> However, you just being um, the purest that you are, mm -hmm. would I would I'm very confident you would knock that back. I probably would. I I mean, not, I wouldn't even think twice about knocking something like that back. You know, <clears throat> because I I wouldn't enjoy it. You know. Um, it's just not for me, man. I'm just I'm just not that kind of player, you know. I, I just can't do it. Um, there's times I've tried to to do things that are outside my zone, and I, I come home from the gig feeling on edge, and you know that I haven't really played or I've not enjoyed it, and you, know, you feel kind of guilty, you know. I like to I like to think that you know if you are playing something that you really love, you should stick to that, you know, and um, not deviate from it. So I really like that, um, and I think everybody that knows you um, knows that that's the case. I didn't mm -hmm. expect a different answer there, uh -huh. um, and I, everybody does really, really respect that about you. Um, how do you fact? And again, I'm giving one a, a, a pop example there, but it could be anything. It could mm -hmm. be a rock thing. Uh -huh. could be, you would knock all of that back, wouldn't you? I would. I mean, I've never been a, <laughs> I've never been a rocker. You know, even even when I was younger, and everyone was getting into ACDC and things. <laughs> It, it didn't do it for me, you know. So, uh, and plus, I'm I'm not that kind of guy. Basically, I'm not going to go on stage and jump about, you know, uh, playing big rock licks. It's just not going to. I can't imagine. That. <laughs> no, nobody can. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, though. So it's uh, like I said there. When we've all started bands, we've always on our kind of, for lack of an awful cheesy term, our musical mm. journey. We've we've all been in those those different bands, but. But there's there's never any old footage of any of you playing ACDC. Nobody will ever find that. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, jumping back and forth, the album, mm -hmm. um, who the good cats that you said that played on the album. Well, who's yeah. on the bass? Uh, Alan Thompson. I thought that. Uh, I didn't yeah, want to delve yeah. in and go. It's Alan Thompson playing yeah. the bass, isn't it? Just in case. And mm -hmm. on the drums, it sounds a little bit like Jim Drummond. It is indeed. Is yeah. it right? Yeah. And uh, the Hammond player is Richard Dunn from Wales, who spent a lot of time playing with Van Morrison, and. The, the real B3 in Maybank with with the the Leslie cabinet, you know, and we moved that into the into the room, so we were all in the one room when we were recording. But um, I was really really lucky to get those guys, and um, it, it was great fun, really really good experience, you know. That Alan Thompson, he's got a lot of potential. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Where did it all go wrong for him? <laughs> um, little in joke there. The guy that we're referring to, Alan Thompson. Uh, Al and I continuously joke about that. that I mean, that, how good is this guy? Seriously, oh, he's, he's world class. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about that, you know. And uh, always frustrating though, because he's known as a bass player, but he'll pick my guitar up and play. You know, he'll play the tracks that I'm recording better than I would. You know, I mean, it's, it's how do you do that? Man? 
he's a he's an amazing musician. Yeah. Um, out of loyalty to you, he's definitely not a better guitar player than you. <laughs> but he's a great guitar. Player. He's a really good acoustic player yeah, too. He's a lovely slide player too. You know, um, he's just got great ears. Some people I think are blessed with really great ears, and they make it look so easy. But you know, behind that, there's there's years of hard work. I think it's a myth about people just picking a picking a guitar up and all of a sudden they're amazing on it. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, we all remember the. The frustrating times of trying to learn, but it just sounds horrendous. <laughs> that's, that's the stage I'm still at. Um, but it's Alan Thompson played Jim Drummond. It's a, it's a great mm-hmm. lineup. The rhythm section is really tight and very complimentary mm-hmm. to, to what you're doing too. Um, because I think um, I, the wrong rhythm section, which mm-hmm. is even good players would make that record sound mm-hmm. not like what what it, what it should sound like. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I, I think it's just getting people that are sympathetic to. What, what it is you're trying to do, you know, um, and it depends what knowledge people have of that music or if they're if they're versed in it, you know. And uh, these guys have been around and played in so many different things that they they know fine well how to how to how to do that music, you know. You mentioned earlier the blues, like there's certain people that um, when they play it. You mentioned when you recorded this album. It was live, and you didn't want anything too tweaked. And some people mm. don't understand what it takes to, to play. What What are the biggest kind of misconceptions that people have got that are playing the blues? When people play the blues wrongly, um, can you describe what how it shouldn't be played? If that makes any sense. I mean, I don't know. I mean, probably I'm probably not the best to judge that. You know, I mean, I know I know what I like to hear. I just sometimes I hear things that are perhaps uh, overly aggressive. I would, I would say is is. The way it's kind of went in recent years, the the, the the kind of modern era, it seems to be very aggressive uh, playing, which a lot of you know that, that belongs in there uh, to a degree. It does, you know, depending on the the mood of the song. But uh, to me, some of it's just a bit too angry, or maybe I'm just getting too mellow. That could be. <laughs> Do you mean that as in it's too rocky? Is that what you mean? Not so much rocky. It's just it's just the actual uh, the power that's uh, the, the the forcefulness that it's played with. Sometimes it's a lot of young, very young players seem to home right in on that, and you know they they play everything with that really aggressive face melting attack. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. so somebody that's just starting playing blues, they're asking you what should I listen to? What records should I should I go and listen to 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 really get a good identity as to what the blues is? What would you? You uh, you'd have to you have to go back to obviously the classics and the one that always gets mentioned is BB uh, King's Live at the Regal, which which is a great record. But um, the one I preferred is um, Blues's King, which is another live recording from from round about that era, and uh, he's just fantastic on it. You know, early Buddy Guy as well, who I spent a lot of time listening to. Not so much as his later career, the albums are, are still good, but his early albums, uh, when he was backing up Junior Wells, the, the guitar playing's fantastic. It's just wild, you know. Um, it depends. I mean, I think there's a style of blues out there for everyone if you, if you dig for it, you know. Uh, T-Bone Walker, who, who's probably my favourite and one of the one of the pioneers, I think, of the the swing style, jump jump blues, you know, and that 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 stuff is really it's quite advanced for the time um, he's he's playing. Uh, yeah, that's a, those are some of my favourites anyway. So I would probably point people that way. You know, you're really good at explaining the different breakdowns of blues and um, the, 
the different types of blues music that there is. Um, so we've mentioned BB King a couple of times. I look at him and I just think he's great. Mm -hmm. I can't really explain why. Mm -hmm. I just think he's great. Mm -hmm. Friend that's not heard of heard of him mm -hmm. or heard his music. Sorry. Mm -hmm. How would you describe what made him so good? I think you've really got him. You can hear in his and he's playing that um, even although he's, he's played those songs or had played those songs thousands of times, every time he played the solos on them, it, it sounded fresh. And I mean, I think he he was constantly improvising. Um, and you get that feeling that he's creating that solo there in the moment, which is a really difficult thing to do, especially when you consider how many gigs he's, he, he had done. I think it's it just feels like he was constantly improvising. Okay, it's in it's in a style and it's in a framework, but it always sounded fresh. And I think he had that gift of every note he played, he meant it, or or gave that impression that he did. I think he did. You know. So. Interesting. Um, I'm going to throw a couple of different names at you. you give me your thoughts on <laughs> players, if it's okay. Um, one of the guys, we had a guitar player on, John Gom, the kind of acoustic guy. Uh -huh. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was talking about the blues player, Booker White. Um, uh -huh. What are your thoughts on, on his playing? Um, the, the acoustic thing is something that I've not really delved into as much uh, as, I probably, uh, as some players. Uh, obviously, I've got the, the Robert Johnson and... Um, Sunhouse, Book of White, you know, I mean, I do listen to that now and again, but I've never tried to really emulate that kind of thing. But I always like Skip James, mm -hmm. um, more so than Robert Johnson. I don't know why, I, I just, I liked his, something about, I think his voice and his, his playing was was nice. And then there's Reverend Gary Davis, all these different styles within the acoustic thing as well, that you could dedicate your life to, to getting the picking patterns right, you know, it's a, a lifelong study. Tell us some other players that we might not be too familiar with. Then Skip James, I've, I've heard of. I'm mm -hmm. not too familiar with stuff. Is there anybody else? Oh, fr from the acoustic thing, I, I, I would put my hands up and say I'm not the the most knowledgeable guy on that. You know, um, it's it's a thing I listen to now and again, but um, I don't know that much about it because I get sidetracked listening to electric basically, and then kind of focused on that. You know. <laughs> It's interesting as well, though, because it, it thinking back to obviously we've we've gigged together a few times now. Um, I always love the fact that you just plug straight into the amp, mm -hmm. straight into the amp. Mm -hmm. Do you use any pedals? Have you ever used any pedals? I've I've, I've tried now and again. Um, I can't imagine you a wah wah pedal. No, I do have one. I must admit, from from when I was younger, but <laughs> it doesn't see a lot of use. I think it's in a drawer somewhere. Uh, but I have tried with pedals and experimented with distortions and things, but to me, it's, it's, it's the guitar. It's the sound of the guitar I want to hear. Uh, and I think you learn to, you have to persevere with that. It's, it's not so easy sometimes because your amp might not be, the room might not suit your amp and you, you have to hit the guitar harder to get the tones. and change the settings and tweak the mids and but it's, it's a struggle sometimes but when it's working I, I love that sound of just pure guitar um, and it's not been a conscious decision not to use pedals you know I have experimented and I've always felt there's, there's something not right when I try and use them um, I can't really describe it better than that but it, it doesn't sit with me a lot of guitar players overcomplicate it, don't they? I, th I think the more pedals you would use, the the more complicated it's, it's bound to get. 
and one was complicated enough for me. So, did I just hear you say a minute ago that you've you've tried to use distortion before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't imagine you hitting that distortion pedal on. Yeah, Do you know that? Yeah, I know it, it's. I've tried it now and again, and, and sometimes due to the nature of gigs or or, or recording, even you you maybe can't get your amp up loud enough to get that natural distortion, and you might try and use a pedal, but it never never really works for me. I'm always conscious of even going near it to stand on it. You know, it's just like... <laughs> it's great straight into the amp. I just I like that, and you can to me because um, anytime I've seen you play as well, you seem to get these various different sounds without the aid of pedals. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And like you said, that's just the, the tones and the fingers, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think a lot of a lot of guitar players, uh, a lot of great guitar players that I've, I've maybe met or, or met on the road or heard, even when you hear them before they go on stage, maybe sitting backstage playing their guitar, they have that tone before they go on the stage. It's not suddenly the amp that's given them that. The tone's already there, and it's because I think they've spent so long with the instrument that they ha- they just have a touch. They know how to hit the string mm. to make the guitar sound a certain way. Uh, and I practice all the time unamplified at home. Uh, I never plug the, the guitar in in the house. Uh, and I, I just sit and try and get the, the, the tone of the instrument itself. Uh, so it's, that sound to me is, is what the guitar should sound like, only just a bit louder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, there's been so many times where I've, I've phoned you, or so many times where I've, I've, I've met you one day, whether it be in the, the place that we've, we've worked in together mm-hmm. occasionally, whether it be a gig, and you've just been telling me, oh, I've just been doing tons of practicing. Mm-hmm. You, you seem to still do, you're, you're such a great standard. You, you still put the hours in, don't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's always something new to, to find on guitar, you know, and I, I'm probably a bit tough on myself that way you know I mean because I always feel like what I do I mean I think I'm quite a basic player compared to compared to some guys I mean you know my, my knowledge of the uh, harmony and, and theory is, is is basic compared to other guys and it makes me work harder to try and keep up you know and yeah that, I, I enjoy the practice I actually enjoy uh, sitting over night playing two three hours just noodling on things and that's how a lot of songs on the album have came from you, you, you know just uh, these wee instrumental tunes that that's what i noodle with at night and come up with wee parts for mm-hmm. uh, so it's uh you you do come up with new things i think the more the, the more you spent just sitting noodling and, and it's not so much a strict practice regime i find it enjoyable just messing around on guitar mm-hmm. so so when you're soloing then, if, if you're saying that you've got a, a, a little knowledge in theory compared to, to other people, then mm-hmm. when, you, when you're when soloing, are you are you thinking, oh, I'll use this scale, that scale, are you saying it in your head? What, how are you doing that when you're, when you're soloing? What's going to happen? Oh, I mean, I, I never, I try not to think about anything, basically, and I think that's when you, when, when you play best, when you're just involved in the music. If you're having a good night, you don't have to think at all, and you, you just try and enjoy the music. And sometimes... Maybe maybe a split second before you play a note, you get an idea of you know, how that note's going to sound on on a good night. Eh? But um, the blues, because because of the chord structures that's involved in it, I mean, you are playing within a framework. And I think the more you improvise over that framework, the more options are open to you on any given any given moment, really. Um, and 
Yeah, scales. I mean, we've all got to learn our scales at, at first, but I always say to students when I'm teaching is uh, relating to theory is the fact that they all think scales is the answer. Scales are suddenly going to make everyone, you know, the next big thing. And it's what I, what I would say to them is just because you know the alphabet doesn't mean you're going to write a good book. Mm. Uh, and that's that's the way I see it with scales. Um, it's uh, learn them and then forget them or, or don't think about them. And if you think about them when you're playing, you've had it on stage because everyone in the crowd will know that guy's just playing scales. Yeah. Right, because I see a lot of, at least to me anyway, when um, when some people are strolling, they're just they're flying up and down that pentatonic scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I I can identify that even as mm -hmm. a non guitar player. So mm -hmm. you must have, you must have started kind of thinking it straight away. Mm -hmm. Um, you played with with numerous different people. Who would be your ideal situa situation for for collaborating? Who would you like to play with that you've not had a chance to yet? An ideal scenario. Oh, wow, I mean, there's so many guys, you know. I mean, I probably couldn't name names. There's that many people I'd love to love to jam with, you know. Um, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I jam with the, with the records, possibly, you know. But uh, that's a that's a really difficult question, man. <laughs> T Bone would have been. Oh, T Bone would have been up there, you know. It's. Uh, I just think he's so, so cool. Um, and there's a certain. <clears throat> a certain slyness to, to his playing that I, that I couldn't describe better than that. It's uh he almost sounds crafty sometimes when he's soloing and it. it's just it's all about the phrasing. Um a lovely player. I, and again, playing playing in a limited framework but doing so much with it, uh, which is amazing. Um I think all these guys had that, you know, you, you they're identifiable because they have their own thing. And they've worked hard at it, and they just make they, these guys make it look easy. But they they very rarely hit a wrong note. Mm -hmm. uh, all the best guys, they're just so good at it, you know. Fan of Robert Cray? I, I, I love Robert Cray's playing. Um, in fact, I was listening to his first album a couple of weeks back, and and just thinking, wow, you know, that, that, that's that's a great record. Uh, I, I went to see him a couple of years ago actually, but he seems to went in more of a kind of soul mm -hmm. i mean was that the i think we may have spoke at this we may have been at the, this same gig the jazz Not, fest uh, i think it was a couple of years ago at the glasgow jazz festival he was on it was a concert hall i seen him at he was supporting he was actually supporting somebody i can't remember who it was mm -hmm. but it doesn't mm -hmm. sound like it was the same gig I no I, I think it was a different one yeah but i mean he, he played a couple of things that the last time i seen him, you know amazing He's just got a lovely touch, and again, he's got an identifiable sound. You know, it's him. A couple of notes, basically, and you know it's Robert Cray. Just the tone and the attack and the, the vibrato, really. Uh, so I, I like players that are identifiable. Yeah. Never really, he wasn't really known so much as a blues player, of course, but certainly somebody with blues influence. What do you think when Hendrix played the blues? What were your thoughts on I, that? I think he had a great touch, you know. And then the thing that people sometimes miss about Hendrix is that his, uh, his rhythm playing is mm -hmm. unbelievable. Um, and even his early stuff before before he was recording his own albums, when he was Sideman for the Eiley Brothers and all, okay. the, uh, all these soul guys that he, that, that he backed up, and the, the rhythm parts are 
such a good rhythm player, uh, let alone a lead player. And it, it would have been good to hear him play more blues, you know. Yeah, he definitely had a touch for it. Like I said, all these, all the funky stuff he did was really mm -hmm. good. Great mm -hmm. funk player too. Yeah, and just he had the rhythm basically. Yeah, he had the feel. It's great getting your thoughts on all these different guitar players. What about what, Neil Rogers? Not a blues player as such, but what, what do you think he's Groove, uh, yeah, and that sound. You know, I mean, you you, you hear that sound and you just that's Neil Rogers. You know, it's uh, such a lovely strat tone. You know, for for that kind of thing and great rhythm player. Um, and it, so many of them, I, I think, are. I think because they're such good rhythm players that that is going to impact on their lead playing. You know, you, you wouldn't think that a guy that plays great rhythm is suddenly going to play a bad solo because they're, they're so tuned into the groove that when, when they actually solo, it's bound to be great, you know. Whereas someone that's maybe not a good rhythm player, if they take a solo, you're thinking, well, if they're not that good at rhythm, surely their solo's not going to be... <laughs> It's not going to match it, you know. I took some notes on my phone as to okay. some of the things that we're going to talk about today, right? And I've just put, I've, I've not got them in question format as such, it's just notes. And I've just got one that says, Bull Ring Gig Story. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, wait, wait, I just remember yeah. you telling me, it was actually, we we both, well, last, I work in, uh, I teach music in a college mm -hmm. called New College Lanarkshire. And Alan Brown has, has, has been in there from time to time. And one day, I just remember you telling us, as in me in the class with the students, mm -hmm. a story or about the bull ring. So I'll let you take it away. I just remember you saying something about a bull ring. So. Oh, I, I, I got a call from uh, my mate in Casablanca, who, who was out there doing a gig and, um, and had been for quite a few years. But um, basically, a guitar player's visa had run out. I think from Canada, and so he, he had to leave the country, which left them pretty much stranded uh, gig-wise. And he, uh, I didn't give much notice on it. He, he was asking if I would just come and cover for the guy. And uh, I don't think I was doing a lot at the time. And I looked at the diary and didn't see anything. I thought, I may as well go and do this. And it wasn't particularly my style of music, but it was a good chance to get away. So we ended up um, getting flown to Spain and stayed in a big hotel for three days, just, just for this one gig, uh, which turned out to be up in the mountains in Spain, in, in, a, in a bull ring, uh, up in the mountains. And it, it was just, it was unbelievable. It was lavish. It was, uh, <laughs> it was unreal. I think there was a DJ flown in from Nice and uh, uh, all these things, uh, Spanish horses, the riders, you know, the I can't remember the name of that, that did all the brought the horses out and it was all floodlit and they were falling around the bull ring, you know, and then we went on and played. It was it was basically a private party. Um what a hell of a party, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the thought of all these bulls going by and you playing really nice blues licks. It just it's yeah. an image that will forever live with me. Yeah, it was good fun. And then we we went from there and we drove down to uh well, we went to Tangiers first and then drove all the way down to Casablanca and I did another two weeks of the gig and then came back. So it was it was nice to get away for a wee bit. I think that's always the it's one of the beneficial things about being a musician, I think, is that when you get the chance to travel, it's uh, it's great to see new places and widen your horizons and experience things that you wouldn't you wouldn't normally get to see. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Al Brown, the new album. What's the the? I'm just. I know this is just your debut album. What's the album called? It's called Scufflin. Scufflin, right? And it's out. It's available on iTunes. I downloaded it this morning. Amazon There's physical well, yeah. copies available at Alan's up and coming gigs. You can check out Alan on Facebook and on Reverb Nation. He's more than likely uh, coming to a bull ring near you. <laughs> <laughs> Our absolute pleasure having a chat to you. I'm, I'm, I'm getting into this uh, Al Brown. I like that stage name. Always known you as Alan, but I like Al Brown. It's more bluesy. Uh, pleasure chatting to you, picking your brains, particularly about the blues. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to coming and see you sing and play. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. And um, thanks for thanks for chatting. And thanks for coming all the way out to Cope Bridge of all places. Yeah, no problem. Your staff proof yeah. vest on to get through here. <laughs> Alan, thanks very much. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. A fantastic interview there with the one. Oh, one. yes. Yes, thank you. Oh, yes. It's just so fantastic. The what's blue. The name, what's the name of your character again? <sighs> what's his name? I'm trying to remember. You can't remember. For anybody that's tuned in for the very first time, Nora's started speaking in a very... Uh, posh voice and we had a name for the new character that she's created that we've both collectively forgotten. Having said that we will try and overcome this adversity at some point Nora which links me in nicely (laughs) (laughs) which links me in nicely to the subject matter of today overcoming adversity Nora yeah, tell me about a time in your life where you've had to come over adversity, where you've had to overcome adversity I should say well, I mean, I think, you know, all artists can relate to this, whether you're a painter or you make films, you're a singer, you play guitar. I do all even, of those things. You're right. Even if you just have a, if you have sort of like a less creative job, I think you definitely have challenges to, um, you know, doing your best work and doing your work with integrity. And, you know, there's adversity everywhere you turn in the world. This is just the nature of things. You know, the nature of things is that there is going to be chaos, Right. And not everything is always going to go your way, and that's fine. But the point is that we keep pushing forward. So there are a lot of different types of adversity, and I wanted to ask you um, what you would like to focus on. Adversity that comes from the self, adversity that comes from outside sources, or something else. You're asking me. Yeah, what kind of adversity did you want to talk about today? Um. If you can, given well, given it's um, a music podcast, for the most part. Right. Well, yeah. you know, I think probably the biggest adversity that most people will face is, frankly, the one that comes from your own head. Usually that's the, the biggest thing to break through is your own doubt, your own self-doubt. And um, the way you break through that is to realize that the things that you fear are not really things to be feared at all, and they only exist in your head. Um, and also the fact that if you're trying to become a musician, a lot of the things that you're most worried about are things that are happening, uh, that you create in the future. What the fuck is that noise going on in the background, Nora? I don't know. I don't live here. I mean, I do, but I don't live over there. Right. Sorry. Continue. I'm so sorry. The noise is gone. We've overcame that adversity. Well, I don't know. Okay. We'll see. So, um, so yeah, so basically the, the problem with, with self-doubt in your own mind is that usually you're coming up with things that are going to go wrong in the future. 
but you're not actually living in the future. You're living in the now. And so you can't do anything about possible future conflicts because you're not in the future. It's like saying, oh, but what if I pee my pants on stage tomorrow night? Well, that's great. But it, it's going to worry you because you don't, you can't do anything about You can't cope with peeing your pants tomorrow night because you're, you're here today. Have you ever you done that on stage? Peed my pants? Probably, yeah. Probably. So what I'm trying to say is that most of the self-doubt, most of the adversity that we are that we experience is just worry from ourselves and doubt about ourselves. And actually, in most of the doubt falls into the category of future. So just make sure that you're watching your thoughts and don't psych yourself out of something that's probably going to go way better than you could possibly imagine. And just remember that you got to just keep working hard and that everybody that ever wanted to do anything was really scared. Everybody ever. So you just got to say, okay, I'm scared, but, you know, here we go. And then you just say, hakuna mafaket. Have you heard that thing from the Lion King, hakuna matata? Yep. You just take the last the last part, matata, and you just replace it with mafaket. And you just got hakuna mafaket. <laughs> Is that in your book too? No. <laughs> Nora, do you, but there you, you go. Do you know who Conor McGregor is? Yeah. Who is he? Isn't he an actor? <laughs> That's Ewan McGregor. Oh, shoot. Right, Con- Conor McGregor is a UFC fighter. Just like Ronda oh, Rousey. Okay. Ronda Rousey is, of course, a UFC fighter. Now, Conor McGregor and you and, and Ronda Rousey have got um, one thing in common. Or, in fact, they've got two things in common. The first being that they're arguably the two biggest stars in UFC. Uh, these, uh-huh. these are two individuals who, if anybody isn't aware, have really achieved that crossover uh, promotion for, for the UFC. They've really tapped into the mainstream market, so to speak. So, obviously, your average Joe that isn't a UFC fan tends to have an awareness, at least in this country, as to who Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey is. Now, Nora, I know you know who Ronda Rousey is. She's even more famous than Conor McGregor, so that's, that's maybe the better example. But anyway... Perhaps the main thing that they've got in common right now is that not only are they massive stars within the UFC and they seemed unbeatable, both of them have recently lost. As in the last fight, uh, Ronda Rousey's was in, in November, I think. She lost her fight. She lost her title. It was the first time she's been beaten. Uh, we haven't seen a great deal of her since. And uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, Conor McGregor lost his uh, first fight in the UFC. Two very dominant fighters who now have to overcome adversity. Now, not being a fighting coach and not being in that field, everybody's entitled to their own opinion and everybody can take a nugget of information uh, to, to simply someone who has some wise words to say. And that person certainly is you in a lot of different circumstances. So what I'm saying to you is Ronda Rousey comes to you and says, Nora, I'm struggling. I've been beaten. I've lost a lot of confidence. Um, Nora, what's your response? Yeah, well... What I would say is you can't lose confidence just because you lose one fight or because you lose 20 fights because it's not the fights you win and the fights you lose. It's about what you do when you lose, how you react to losing, and what you do the next day. You know, Are you going to get back into the gym and keep training and remember who you are, or are you going to say, oh, that's it, I'm a human being and I lost, and somebody else is really good, therefore I'm not as good. You know, there isn't one champion in everything. I mean, there can be a champion for a while, but there's no one greatest tennis player. There's not one greatest guitar player. There's not one greatest business person. Maybe for the moment, but you know, the, the, I think the, uh, 
the real nature of life is change, and there are always going to be things that are changing. Now, Rhonda shouldn't lose, and this other guy, Ian McGregor, just kidding. Um, I don't think they should lose any confidence just because there's somebody else who's come up and been just as good as they used to be. And I don't think they should lose any confidence just because they lose a fight, because, you know, nobody can win 100% of everything all the time. The things that really make you great are what happens when you lose, what happens when you don't beat the odds, what happens... You know, when not everything goes your way. I mean, you know, everybody's going to experience times in life when you get knocked down. But real champions don't give a shit about that. You know what I mean? Both of them have handled the losses very differently. Ronda yeah, okay. Rousey didn't do, they usually do an interview in the octagon, as in the ring, just after the, the win or lose. Uh, the 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 guy in the UFC is called Joe Rogan. He interviews him just afterwards. Ronda didn't do an interview afterwards. She wasn't on the post fight press conference, and she walked through the airport a few days later with like a a jacket covering her face because she'd been bloody and she'd been messed up. She didn't want to be seen. Conor McGregor, on the other hand, he did all the interviews. He, his now famous line is, "I'm humble and victory or defeat. I'll be back." did all the media obligations afterwards that Ronda didn't do. So with that being said, as you just stated a minute ago, that's champions have got to react. Um, you've got to react like champions or, or something like that. I can't remember the lines. Well, I think that, I think you've got, uh, I think you've got, every, I mean, I don't know. I think you've got to talk to them. You'd have to actually, even if you talk to them, you might not know what they're thinking. I think you have to like actually get inside their head and figure out how they feel. But I think everybody's got the right, especially if you're a public figure, I think you've got the right to do whatever the hell you want. If you want to talk to the press, you should talk to them. And if you don't want to, you don't have to. I don't think any of the public should pass judgment on people based on whether or not they do an interview. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Rhonda doesn't fight so that the world can watch her. She fights because it's what she wants to do. It's her life, you know, and she would be doing it whether she had 20 million people watching her on TV or if it was her in a gym and nobody knew her name, she would still do it. And so I think it's really more about um, like athletes, musicians, you know, anybody who does anything that they love. I think you just got to give people the respect and the privacy that they need to do whatever the hell they want to. You can be a quiet champion also. It's not just because if you lose and you don't want to talk to the press, I don't think that's anything negative. If you win and you don't want to talk to the press, that's fine too. I just think, you know, people should do whatever they want to do. And just because they don't want to make every single moment out of their lives a huge celebrity deal, uh, you know, I don't think that really warrants judgment from the public. I think everybody should be free to do whatever the hell they want. I know what you mean. But um, she would always give the interviews after she won. And I think she should have gave the interviews after she lost. Because when Conor McGregor came out, I think a lot of people... Conor McGregor's like a big talker. He talks a lot of smack. But I think there wasn't... A lot of people would have been happy that he lost because um, he'd built himself up so much. But I think he won a lot of people over afterwards because he was so humble in, in defeat and he gave time to everybody for photos. He gave time to, to everybody in general. Yeah, um, well, maybe you know, maybe some people don't have the inner strength to do that all the time. You know, maybe they don't have that. And, you know, that's fine too. Not everybody has all... You know, there was a story about... Uh, who was it? I think it was John Lennon. Maybe I'm a, I can't. I think it was John Lennon, but I can't remember exactly who it was. Maybe somebody else said that they had to keep somebody extremely famous, you know, one a legend, a guitarist, and somebody that had to. Um, they had to keep a bucket off the stage because every time this John person Lennon. would yep, go, John Lennon. 
every time he would go onto the stage, he would have to throw up before. Every single time. I mean, like, you know, any normal person would be like, oh, I'm such a freak. I, I get so nervous. What's wrong with me? But that that's just what he had to do. And, you know, maybe he got over it later in his life. I don't know. But I think, you know, everybody is not perfect, you know, and the public, we talk about adversity. Jesus, you've got millions of people around the world, especially in the age of computers and phones and all this stuff. You got a million people, 10 million people, a billion people, however many, watching you all the time, trying to figure out what you're thinking and imposing their judgments on your life and your actions and the way you deal with the very pressures that they're exerting on you. I don't think that's fair. I mean, that's yeah, a major point. You know, and like a lot of people, you know, they're out, their only outlet to get these things out of themselves. You know, if you're a basketball player, your favorite thing in life is probably basketball. And if you're an actor, your favorite thing in life is probably acting. And then you're getting judged so much off of this thing that you love. You don't even have an outlet to deal with it because the entire world is judging every fucking thing you do. You know, I mean, in a way, fame kind of poisons your artistic or athletic outlet to get your stress out because... You know, you've got everybody staring at you all the time, and you're just trying to have a good time. You're just trying to do your thing, you know? And I think it can ruin a lot of people. So I think, you know, I think it's great that Rhonda said, for whatever reason, whether she's afraid or she's proud or she or she just didn't feel like it or whatever, whatever reason for her to say, you know what? I don't want to be in the press today. I think that's incredibly brave, and I think more power to her. That's my opinion. Nora Germain supports Ronda Rousey. Yep. Also, Ronda Rousey supports Bernie Sanders, which I think is pretty cool. So there you go. Wise words from the soon-to-be best-selling author, Nora <laughs> Francesca Germain. Big yeah, thanks we'll... to Nora. Big thanks to the one and only very humble um, and amazing Alan Brown. Thanks once again to Ron North for producing this shit every single week. And norrisyourmain.com, um, scottcowie.com, all the links are there underneath this uh, SoundCloud page and Facebook page and whatever else. All Alan's links are up. Where to buy the new album, the debut album. Get it bought for this man. Support him. Uh, get along these gigs. And we will see you guys next week.